Aerospace Dimensions, Module 1, Introduction to Flight, Module Outline. In this module, you will learn about Chapter 1, Flight, Chapter 2, to fly by the lifting power of rising air, Chapter 3, Balloons, they create their own thermals. Chapter 1, Flight. Learning Outcomes, 1. Describe the relationship between Bernoulli's principle and Newton's laws of motion and how they were used to develop a machine that could fly. 2. Describe the coefficient of lift and the parameters involved. 3. Identify the parts of an airplane and an airfoil. 4. Describe the four forces affecting an airplane in flight. 5. Define the three axes, movement around those axes, and the control surfaces that create the motion. Important terms. Aero, pertaining to air. Aerodynamics, relating to the forces of air and motion. Aeronautics, the science of flight within the atmosphere. Aerospace, a combination of aeronautics and space. Air, a mixture of gases that contains approximately 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and 1% other gases. Aircraft, any machine that is capable of flying through the air. Included are ultralights, airplanes, gliders, balloons, helicopters, hang gliders, and parasails. Airplane, an aircraft that is kept aloft by the aerodynamic forces upon its wings and is thrust forward by a means of propulsion. Airfoil, a component, such as a wing, that is specifically designed to produce lift, thrust, or directional stability. Airport, a place on either land or water where aircraft can land and take off for flight. Altitude, height above sea level or ground level, expressed in units. Aviation, the art, science, and technology of flight within the atmosphere. Aviator, a person who operates an aircraft in flight. Camber, the curved part of an airfoil from its leading to trailing edge. Cord, a line drawn through an airfoil from its leading to trailing edge. Downwash, the downward movement of air behind a wing in flight. Drag, a force which slows the forward movement of an aircraft in flight. Dynamic, forces in motion. Gravity, the natural force pulling everything to earth. Leading edge, the front part of a wing or airfoil. Lift, the upward force that opposes gravity and supports the weight of an aircraft. Relative wind, the flow of air which moves opposite the flight path of an airplane. Thrust, the force which moves an aircraft forward in flight. Upwash, the upward movement of air ahead of the wing in flight. Vortex, a spinning column of air that is created behind the wingtip as a result of air moving from an area of high pressure on the bottom to an area of low pressure on top. Wind, air in motion, gods, angels, prisoners, and balloons. Pure mechanical flight involves using some kind of force to lift a machine upward away from the earth, thus opposing gravity. A bird is a living machine that gets lift by flapping its wings. Once airborne, a glider is lifted by rising column of air, known as thermals. A balloon is lifted by a large bubble of warm air. In flight, an airplane is lifted by the dynamic energy forces of the air upon its wings. But how did it all begin? From the beginning of recorded time, there have been myths and legends about flying gods, angels, and other supernatural beings. One of the earliest recorded accounts of manned flight is an ancient Greek myth that tells of a father and son who were imprisoned on the island of Crete. They decided that the only way to escape the prison was to fly. 
Secretly, they collected feathers from seabirds and wax from bees to make wings for their arms. When the time came, the father, Daedalus, and his son, Icarus, quietly melted the wax onto their arms and mounted the bird feathers to make wings. When the wax was cool, they started flapping their wings and took off over the Aegean Sea in hopes of reaching freedom. Daedalus warned his son not to fly too high or the sun would melt the wax on his arms. Icarus was having too much fun and disregarded his father's warning, flying closer and closer to the sun. The heat from the sun eventually melted the wax on the wings of Icarus, and he plunged to his death in the sea. Around 1299 AD, it was written that the great explorer, Marco Polo, saw Chinese sailors attached to kites being used as military observers. This can be considered the first manned aircraft. Historians agree, however, that the first true powered flight with humans on board was in a hot air balloon and the event occurred in France during the 18th century. Brothers Joseph and Etienne Montgolf EA created a manned hot air balloon. On November 21, 1783, pilots Pil Atre de Raz EA and Francois Darlons made a historic 25-minute flight over Paris. But let's start from the very beginning, nature's flying machine. In the book, The Fantasy and Mechanics of Flight, the author, Paul Fortin, explains how birds fly. There are two phases of bird flight, a ground phase and a lift phase. The ground phase allows the bird to get started moving forward in order for the wings to provide the necessary lift. To be lifted by its wings, a bird must be moving forward fast enough to make air pass over its wings. A bird can move forward by flapping its wings. Most of the flapping is done by the outer wing. The flight feathers work like the propeller of a plane, i.e., they push downward and backward, thereby driving the air backward and moving the bird forward. Once the bird's speed is adequate, lift over the wing is generated by the same principle as the flow of air over the wing of an airplane. A bird's wing is shaped somewhat like an airplane's wing. The upper surface is curved more than the undersurface. Basically, the same principles of lift that apply to an airplane apply to a bird. However, the wings of a bird also act as its propeller. Once again, referring to the fantasy and mechanics of flight, the author says, Slow motion pictures of birds in flight show that the wings move downward rapidly. The wing tips trace a figure eight as they move over the air. The downward beat of the wings moves the bird forward as the outer tips push against the air. Wing feathers are arranged much like shingles on a roof. They change position when the bird is flapping. On the downbeat of a wing, the feathers are pressed together so little air can pass through them. On the upstroke, the feathers open. The downstroke of the feathers provide a strong lifting force and the opening, upward action provides a smooth energy-saving return motion. You will soon learn that airplane flight is based upon two laws and bird flight utilizes these laws as well. Like an airplane's wing, there is a pressure difference between the upper and lower areas of a bird's wing. This creates a form of Bernoullian lift. Also, when the bird changes its body, angle slightly upward to its flight path, Newton's third law of motion takes effect, and this is an example of dynamic lift or Newtonian lift. Like airplanes, birds need to approach and land slowly. A bird uses its tail feathers and its wing feathers to steer, brake, and produce drag, as well as lower speed lift. This greater lift, at a lower speed, allows the bird to land without getting hurt. 
The bird is a fascinating, natural flying machine, and further study into its mechanism of flight is encouraged. Two great scientists never flew, but although they never attempted to fly, Dutch-born Daniel Bernoulli and Englishman Sir Isaac Newton are very important in the history of aerospace. The laws and principles they discovered laid the groundwork for the science of manned flight both in air, aviation, and in space. These laws helped develop many aeronautic accomplishments using the science of aerodynamics. Daniel Bernoulli Not as well known as Isaac Newton, but certainly one who holds an honored place in the history of aerospace science, is Daniel Bernoulli. His discovery of the relationship between pressure and fluids in motion became the cornerstone of the theory of airfoil lift. He found that a fluid, like air in motion, has a constant pressure. However, when that fluid is accelerated, the pressure drops. Using this principle, wings are designed to make airflow go faster over the top. This, in turn, causes the pressure to drop and the wing moves upward against gravity. Bernoulli found that the pressure of a fluid, like air, drops when it is accelerated. An example of this can be shown when air passes through a tube that has a restriction, think of an hourglass shape. This type of tube, known as a venturi tube, causes the air to accelerate when it passes through the middle. The pressure at the restriction drops. As velocity increases, the pressure decreases. This is the secret of lift for flight that eluded mankind for centuries. Sir Isaac Newton Isaac Newton received the highest honor when he was knighted for his work in science. That is why we call him Sir Isaac Newton today. He not only gave the world a mathematical explanation of gravity, he figured out how forces and motion are related to matter. He gave the world three laws that are still very much in use to this day. 1. An object at rest will remain at rest unless acted upon by an unbalanced outside force. 2. A force acting upon a body causes it to accelerate in the direction of the force. Acceleration is directly proportional to the force and inversely proportional to the mass of the body being accelerated. 3. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Newton's third law is used to explain how an aircraft is lifted against the force of gravity. An example of this can be shown by sticking your hand out the window of a car traveling at highway speeds. Pointing your fingers forward, toward the direction the car is going, with your hand tilted slightly upward, your hand should rise. The oncoming wind becomes the action and the upward movement of your hand is the reaction. An airplane's wing acts like your hand. When it is angled slightly upward, it, too, receives some of its lift from the oncoming air. The airflow is the action and the reaction provides lift. A new look at lift. For years, there has been a widely accepted explanation on how a wing creates lift and makes the airplane take flight. Many textbooks, including ground school manuals for pilot training, explained the theory of lift like this. The upper surface of an airplane's wing, or airfoil, is designed with a greater curvature or camber on the top side. This curved line causes the oncoming air to flow much faster over the upper surface. Using Bernoulli's law for proof, it was stated, as the airflow speeds up, the pressure drops, and it creates a lower pressure as it passes over the top of the wing. With a lower pressure above, there has to be a higher pressure on the underside. Subsequently, the wing has nowhere to go but upward toward the lower pressure. It was also taught that when the molecules of oncoming air split at the front of wing, they traveled over and under this airfoil and met at the back, trailing edge, of the wing at exactly the same time. This is known as the theory of equal transit time. 
Keep this in mind as it will be discussed later. Newton's third law was also used in the explanation of how an airplane is lifted against the force of gravity. A classic example is this, when the airplane's wing is angled slightly upward, it receives some of its lift from the oncoming air. Both Newton's and Bernoulli's scientific laws have been used to explain how a wing lifts. These explanations were basically simple and something any elementary science book could handle. There was only one thing wrong. An explanation where Bernoulli's law creates the lift based on the shape of the airfoil is not quite right. And any explanation where Newton's laws create most of the lift is also not quite right. The actual process of creating lift is very complicated. In the world of aerodynamic science, there is an ongoing argument about how lift really occurs. Most every textbook correctly shows all of the parts of a wing. These include the leading edge, upper camber, lower camber, trailing edge, and cord. The actual shape of a wing or airfoil has a beautiful, graceful form known as a teardrop. Most airfoil designs are relatively flatter on the bottom, the components of a standard airfoil. Even when the air is calm around the airport, as an airplane moves forward on takeoff, it creates a wind that goes in the opposite direction. This air in motion is called the relative wind. At the beginning of this whole lifting process a lot of power is needed. This is provided by the propeller or a jet engine. As air flows toward the wing, it splits at the leading edge and flows backward to join the underside air. Most traditional textbooks will say that the upper and lower air molecules will meet at the trailing edge at precisely the same moment. This is wrong. This explanation is based on the theory of equal transit time. In reality, the air traveling over the upper surface of the wing goes much faster and much farther than the underside airflow. Subsequently, the air flowing over the top goes beyond and downward. This is called downwash and creates a huge amount of dynamic force. The wing creates a huge amount of downforce on the surrounding air. When you look at a wing in cross-section, you will see the same teardrop shape that was mentioned before. If you study it for a moment and imagine the air flowing around the wing during flight, you can readily see that the oncoming molecules of air at one point have to split. The upper flow has to bend upward and the lower flow bends to pass under the wing. Something else happens, the air flow tends to hug the wing. Air is a fluid like water and the flow tends to stick to the wing. To illustrate this, take a spoon and hold it under a flow of water from a faucet. Turn the bottom side of the spoon to the water flow and notice how the water hugs the spoon, and then when it exits the tip of the spoon, it bends toward the center. This is called the coanda effect. In the streamlines of airflow around the wing, the top flow is really outrunning the lower flow. Because of the higher speed of the top flow, and subsequent back and down action, the air passes the trailing edge wing and starts downward. This is where the coanda effect comes into play. This downwash creates a huge amount of force and the subsequent reaction is what lifts the aircraft upward. The dynamic downwash force presses down so hard on the air, it causes the wing to lift. The dynamics of total lift are complicated and it is almost impossible to make it elementary simple for this module. If you want to really get into the math and theoretical science of how lift occurs, check out the CAP website for more resources. The importance of angle of attack. When a pilot or aviator pulls back on the control stick or yoke, the nose goes upward. In aeronautical terminology, it goes like this, when the pilot pulls back on the stick, the elevator goes upward and this causes the airplane to rotate around the lateral axis, 
That's the one that goes through the airplane wingtip to wingtip. The nose pitches upward and this subsequently causes the wing to also rotate around the lateral axis. It is easy to see that this upward movement of the leading edge causes the airflow coming toward the wing to make a much more dramatic flow change. This also increases the dynamic forces against the underside of the wing. As a result of the higher angle or angle of attack, a greater downwash is created as the flow exits the back of the wing. Thus, it can be stated that an increase in the angle of attack causes a substantial increase in the amount of lift created. This increase in angle of attack explains how an airplane can fly upside down. Although the curvature of the wing is now greatest on the bottom of the wing, an increase in the angle of attack still creates the downwash and lift is maintained. In everyday flying, angle of attack is changed many times during the course of a flight. It all begins at takeoff when a pilot has reached enough speed and then pulls back on the stick or yoke. This causes the nose to pitch upward. The four forces acting upon an airplane in flight. There are four forces acting upon an airplane in flight. They are lift, gravity, thrust, and drag. Each of these forces has an opposing force. The word oppose means to work against. Therefore, lift opposes gravity and drag opposes thrust. We will expand on these terms for better understanding. The two artificial forces, thrust and lift. Thrust, this is a force that pulls or pushes an airplane forward through the air, and it opposes drag. In some airplanes, thrust is provided by a propeller. In others, it is provided by a jet engine. This force is artificial because it takes a mechanical device, like an engine and propeller, to generate it. Lift, this, also, is an artificial force because it requires a mechanical device to create the pressure changes discussed in Bernoulli's law. Pressure differential creates lift. To put this into practical terms, when an airplane is ready for takeoff, the pilot adds power and the machine moves forward. The relative wind starts to flow under and over the wings. The wings, a mechanical device, are being forced to move through air, a fluid. The two natural forces, drag and gravity, drag. The best way to understand drag is to imagine walking waist deep in a swimming pool. Now imagine what it's like to walk faster. It is difficult because of the drag of the water on your body. A similar resistance occurs when riding a bicycle against a strong headwind. Like water, air creates drag. Drag is a natural force that is common throughout all of nature and is especially evident in flight. Gravity, there is a natural force which pulls everything toward the center of the earth. This is the force of gravity and, on earth, we speak of that force as being 1g. The two artificial forces, thrust and lift. Thrust, this is a force that pulls or pushes an airplane forward through the air, and it opposes drag. In some airplanes, thrust is provided by a propeller. In others, it is provided by a jet engine. This force is artificial because it takes a mechanical device, like an engine and propeller, to generate it. Lift, this, also, is an artificial force because it requires a mechanical device to create the pressure changes discussed in Bernoulli's law. Pressure differential creates lift. To put this into practical terms, when an airplane is ready for takeoff, the pilot adds power and the machine moves forward. The relative wind starts to flow under and over the wings. The wings, a mechanical device, are being forced to move through air, a fluid, the three axes. Imagine that you are an aeronautical engineer, 
and one of your jobs is to suspend an airplane from a cable so that it will hang perfectly level in all directions. For the sake of illustration, let's say that you are going to do this experiment in a large building area, like a hangar or a gymnasium. Somewhere up high, you would hook the cable to one of the ceiling supports. The other end would be hooked to the airplane at precisely the right point where it would hang level. This cable line would be known as its vertical axis. Now, visualize a line that goes from wingtip to wingtip and passes through the center where the cable suspends the airplane. This side-to-side -side line is called the lateral axis. Imagine yet another line that passes through the nose and ends at the tail. This line also passes through the cable that is suspending the airplane. This nose-to-tail line is known as the longitudinal axis. If you hooked your cable at the point where all three of these axes come together, that point is called the center of gravity. Airplanes can only move in three directions. In flight, an airplane can only move in three directions, i.e., nose right and nose left, roll right and roll left, and nose up and nose down. An example, if you walked out to the end of the wing of this suspended airplane and pushed up or pulled down on its wingtip, it would rotate around the longitudinal axis. Rotation around this axis is called roll. If you went back to the tail and moved it up and down, the airplane would rotate around its lateral axis. This motion is called pitch. If you moved the tail from side to side, this would be a rotation around the vertical axis and is called yaw. Thus, flight is said to be three-dimensional. So how does a pilot get the airplane to move in these three dimensions? It's done by manipulating the moving parts on the plane with the inside control stick, or yoke, and the rudder pedals. By using the dynamic forces of the air as they rush over the control surfaces of the airplane, the airplane flies. The elevator is hinged to the horizontal stabilizer. The horizontal stabilizer is fixed and doesn't move. It gives the airplane stability. The elevator is attached to the horizontal stabilizer and moves up and down. Movement of the elevator pitches the nose up or down in a rotation around the lateral axis. On some aircraft, the horizontal stabilizer and the elevator are one. Engineers call this a stabilator, and it works by changing the angle of attack. The stabilator is a very effective method of controlling pitch. When the pilot pulls back on the control yoke or stick, the stabilator's leading edge goes down. This creates a negative angle of attack and the low pressure increases on the bottom. When the stabilator is moved, it causes a rotation around the lateral axis and the nose is pitched up or down. Nose right, nose left. When the pilot wants the nose to go left or right, he or she has to move the rudder pedals located on the floor of the cockpit. When the right rudder pedal is pushed forward, this moves the rudder to the right. The dynamic force of the air causes the tail of the airplane to move left and the nose to go to the right. This movement is around the vertical axis. The nose right, nose left motion is called yaw. Wingtip up, wingtip down. If a pilot wants the wings to move up or down, he or she rotates the control yoke to the right or left. Out on the ends of the wings are located control surfaces, called ailerons. When one aileron moves downward, the other one on the opposite wing moves upward and vice versa. The airplane then rotates around the longitudinal axis. This movement around the longitudinal axis is known as roll. Flaps, and what are they used for? When a control surface is moved, especially on a wing, some people will say that the pilot is moving the flaps. In fact, many uninformed people think that any movable control surface on an airplane is called a flap. 
So what are the real flaps and what do they do? In a photograph of a Cessna Skyhawk in the text, the trailing edge of the wing is down. It looks somewhat like the whole backside of the wing has dropped. This is somewhat true, the inboard portion of this airplane's wing did go down. From an aerodynamic point of view, study the photograph and visualize the upper camber of the wing, starting at the leading edge and going all the way back to the trailing edge. With the flaps down, the curvature of the upper camber is dramatically increased and so is the wing area. The flaps shown on this Cessna are known as Fowler flaps. When the flaps are down, it causes an increase in both the upper camber and wing area. This will substantially increase lift. So there you have the answer, the flaps actually increase lift so that an airplane can fly slower and still maintain flight. Flaps are especially useful in landing, where it is desirable to touch the ground at a minimum speed. Flaps are also used during takeoff and this allows the pilot to decrease takeoff distance. And, finally, flaps increase drag. They act like big doors that open into the airstream. During one of your orientation flights, ask the pilot to demonstrate the use of flaps. Note the airspeed when the flaps come down. You will also feel a change in the airplane and hear the air rumble around the flaps. The airplane will rise and the wind will buffet the flaps. They are very effective in what they do. The aerodynamics of a propeller. When you examine a propeller closely, you soon discover that it is shaped like a wing on each side of the center or hub. The reason for this airfoil shape is obvious, it is a wing. It is a wing designed to lift forward creating a force called thrust. As the propeller rotates, its leading edge moves through the air, and this motion creates a relative wind. As this rotational relative wind moves around the curved surface of the propeller blade, a low pressure is created. This low pressure is a forward lift, and given enough power, the entire airplane will move forward into this area of lower pressure. The design of a propeller is very important to its aerodynamic properties. The very center of the propeller is the hub. Bolts go through this hub and fasten the propeller to the engine. Just outside the hub you'll notice that this part of the blade is thick and narrow. Note also that the angle, called the angle of incidence, is quite high. If you can imagine this propeller going round and round at a certain speed, other than the hub, this point will be the slowest. Low pressure, or lift, is created by a high angle of incidence and greatly curved camber. Further down, the blade has a longer cord and greater area. The angle of incidence has slightly decreased and, at this point, the speed is much greater. Near the edge of the propeller the angle of incidence is considerably less than near the hub. The cord is longer and the speed is higher. Out at the tip, the speed is tremendous so there is a smaller cord, smaller angle of incidence, and a smaller area. If you think in terms of the four methods of increasing lift, the shape of the propeller begins to make sense. In the history of one of America's most important World War II aircraft, the P-47 Thunderbolt, it tells how engineers at Republic Aircraft had a difficult time getting the right propeller for the huge Pratt & Whitney R-2800 engine. Eventually, they found the right combination, and the M version of this aircraft reached almost 500 miles per hour. UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles. They look a bit strange, and it becomes immediately apparent that no one is at the controls when a UAV passes by on takeoff. These UAVs stand for unmanned aerial vehicles. In a combat zone, if the enemy spots one, it is probably already too late to react. Pilots sitting in a control center 7,000 miles away know exactly who the enemy is and where they are.
The pilot controlling the UAV only has to acquire the target and destroy it. These incredible machines have just come into a position of high regard by the US military and they are feared by our enemies. One of the centers for UAV operation and control is at Creech Air Force Base in Indian Springs, Nevada. For several years, the UAVs were used mostly for reconnaissance, a preliminary or exploratory survey of an area to collect information. But as conflicts escalated, they have taken on a combat role. Of these predators, one version is known as the Reaper MQ-9 and is one of the most effective combat aircraft ever to go to war. CEP uses the surrogate predator for increasingly important missions for non-combat reconnaissance missions. In 2006, the USAF announced that it had a UAV capable of hunting and destroying enemy activity. It was a modification of an earlier UAV series and was designed to carry as many as 14 Hellfire anti-tank missiles. The MQ-9 UAV can carry bombs and precision-guided missiles to the battle zone. The aircraft has a ceiling of 50,000 feet and a cruise speed of 260 knots. One of the most notable features is its ability to loiter in the target area for as much as 14 hours. In order to give the reader a better understanding of the UAV and its role in the U.S. Air Force inventory, the following will focus on the role of the MQ-9 as it currently exists. The MQ-9 is a variant of the original UAV used by the Air Force MQ-9 Predator. It is manufactured by the General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and is used as a high-altitude, long-range, long-endurance combat aircraft. The primary mission is that of surveillance, a close watch or supervision of an area after reconnaissance or recognition of something in the area. The MQ-9 has a 950-horsepower turbo-propeller engine. There are several terms used in this new aerospace technology and they include UAV, Unmanned Aerial Vehicle, UAS, Unmanned Aerial System, and RPV, Remotely Piloted Vehicle. All of these terms are used in basically the same context. Although the MQ-9 can fly on pre-programmed flight plans by itself, it is constantly controlled by flight crews located at Air Force installations known as GCs or ground control stations. By the end of 2009, the U.S. Air Force had a total of 195 Predators and 28 Reapers in its inventory. NASA has also been using a UAV in its continuing research efforts. One example, the Akana, has been extensively used in combating wildfires in California. This demonstrated that UAV are extremely valuable in the private sector, as well as in military service. The Big Bird, Global Hawk Another UAV that has been used in the combat arena is the Global Hawk. The Grumman RQ-4 enabled to record intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance data. Because of its large coverage area, the remotely piloted aircraft has become a useful tool for recording data and sending it to warfighters on the ground. The Global Hawk is built by Northrop Grumman and is primarily used by the USAF as a surveillance aircraft. It is equipped with synthetic aperture radar that penetrates heavy weather, including sandstorms. It has the ability to survey over 40,000 square miles in a day. Chapter 2. To fly by the lifting power of rising air. Learning Outcomes 1. Describe how gliders use the environment to obtain altitude. 2. Describe why gliders look different than powered airplanes. 3. Discuss how gliders can achieve great distances without power. Important Terms Altitude, the height or distance above a reference plane. 
The most common planes of reference used in aviation are heights above sea level and ground level. If it's above average sea level, it's referred to MSL, or mean sea level. And if it's above ground level, it's referred to as AGL. Convection, fluid motion between regions of unequal heating. Density. Mass in a given volume, example, 12 eggs in a basket. Glide ratio, a mathematical relationship between the distance an aircraft will glide forward to the altitude loss. If an aircraft has a glide ratio of 20 to 1, and it is 1 mile above the Earth, it should glide 20 miles before landing. Lapse rate, the average rate at which temperature decreases with an increase in altitude. The average lapse rate is 3.5 degrees Fahrenheit per 1,000 feet increase in altitude. Soaring, the art of staying aloft by exploiting the energy of the atmosphere. Stability, the atmosphere's resistance to vertical motion. Thermal, a column of air that moves upwards. Towplane, usually a single-engined airplane that will pull a glider from the ground to an altitude where it can be released. Wave, a waving action with strong up and down motion started as air moves across mountain ranges. Sailplane pilots can use the motion of this wave to gain altitude. Rising air can make things fly. Rising air can have enough energy to provide lift for an aircraft. That's what soaring flight is all about. Normally, we think of air moving parallel to the Earth, and, of course, we call this wind. But there are other factors involved, and one of the most important is the influence that the sun has upon our environment. From 93 million miles away, the sun provides energy that causes our atmosphere to move both horizontally and vertically. The vertical motion provides lifting power for sailplanes. When the surface of the Earth gets warmed by the sun, the surrounding atmosphere is heated and this causes the air to rise. This vertical motion happens because of a change in the density of the air. As the air becomes less dense, it tends to get lighter and this lighter air wants to rise upward until it cools. This cooling with an increase in altitude is called the lapse rate. Normally, the temperature will drop at a rate of 3.5 degrees Fahrenheit for every 1,000 feet of altitude gained. The Celsius equivalent of this is 2 degrees Celsius per 1,000 feet of altitude. When warm air rises into the colder air at higher altitudes, it cools and then stops rising. After a period of hanging around, the air begins to sink back toward the Earth. This up and down movement results in a circulation known as convection. Sometimes the atmosphere strongly resists this convective circulation and is said to be stable. Two other things happen to air when it is heated. It expands and the pressure drops. Here is an example, in early morning, the air is cool due to low overnight temperatures. The molecules are close together and the atmosphere is more dense when it is cold. When the sun comes up, it warms the earth, and this warms the surrounding atmosphere. The molecules start bouncing around at a higher rate due to heat energy. Because they are bouncing around faster and faster, they spread out. This means any given parcel of warm air will be lighter than an equal parcel of cold air. As a result of a decrease in density and a lighter weight, the warm air rises. This upward flow has energy in it and given enough power, it can lift a flying machine. During daylight hours, the sun heats the Earth's surface. Some areas absorb this energy while others tend to reflect it back into the atmosphere. This reflected energy heats the surrounding atmosphere and causes rising columns, or even bubbles of air, called thermals. It's these thermals that provide lift for sailplanes. Gliders and sailplanes, 
aircraft designed to ride the rising air. When the air moves upward, this thermal can provide enough lift and glide ratio to keep a competition sailplane up for hours. By technical definition, a glider is an aircraft that is towed to a certain altitude and then it glides back to Earth due to the pull of gravity. A sailplane, on the other hand, actually soars on the energy of the environment. The pilot of a sailplane uses every method possible to find lift and then to ride the wave to a greater height. Note that more information about the air environment glider and sailplane pilots used to their advantage for flight is found in Module 3. During World War II, the Allies used gliders to haul soldiers into battle. They were towed aloft by transport airplanes and then released over designated drop zones. Once released from the tow plane, the skilled glider pilots would try to get the gliders safely back on the ground so the troops could be in a better combat position. In later wars, the glider was replaced by troop-carrying helicopters and this proved far more effective in the combat environment. The United States Air Force Academy Sailplane It is the dream of many CAP cadets to someday enter the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado. One of the outstanding programs at the Academy is their sailplane training and many cadets get the opportunity to take flight training in a Schweitzer TG 4A sailplane. The sailplane has dual flight controls. The flight control surfaces are actuated by control sticks and rudder pedals through a push rod and cable system. Aileron and elevator control is accomplished through push rods connected to both control sticks. Rudder control is accomplished through cables attached to both sets of rudder pedals. The USAF Academy TG-4A sailplanes are equipped with instruments which include an airspeed indicator, an altimeter, a vertical velocity indicator, a sensitive variometer, and compass. The Civil Air Patrol Cadet Glider Program The Civil Air Patrol offers yearly flight encampments on a nationwide basis. These are called flight academies and provide each participating cadet at least 10 hours of flight instruction with an FAA-certified flight instructor. This is called dual for one-on-one -on -one instruction. Because a cadet is eligible by federal aviation regulation to solo a glider at age 14, this is an outstanding entry-level opportunity for future pilots to acquire important, basic flying skills. Once a cadet has soloed a glider, he or she can then move on to powered flight training at another flight academy. The eventual goal is to achieve the coveted private pilot certificate which allows a pilot to carry passengers and to fly under visual flight regulations VFR, virtually anywhere within the continental United States airspace system. Civil Air Patrol offers all cadets an opportunity to participate in an orientation flight program. This program is designed to give each cadet nine flights during the course of his or her cadet experience. These flights are flown by CAP senior members who meet specific experience and training requirements as well as thorough personal background clearance standards. This is by far the best opportunity for a cadet to find out if he or she really likes flying. It involves altitude, attitude, and aptitude. Chapter 3. Balloons, they create their own thermals. Learning outcomes. 1. Define the principle of buoyancy and how this relates to the flight of a balloon. 2. Describe the components of a balloon and how each works in the flight profile. 3. Describe the history of the balloon and why it's recognized as the first powered manned flight. Important terms, altimeter, instrument to provide the height of the balloon above sea level. Balloon, an aircraft that uses lighter than air gas for its lift with no built-in means of horizontal control. Burner, 
the heat source for filling the envelope with hot air. Buoyancy, to rise or float on the surface of water or within the atmosphere. Crown, the top of the hot air balloon's envelope. Envelope, the main body of the balloon, usually made of nylon, that is filled with lighter than air gas. Gondola, a wicker basket, hanging below the envelope, used to transport passengers and propane tanks. Gore, one of several vertical panels that make up the envelope. Moncoff EA, the name of the two French brothers who created the first successful manned hot air balloon in 1783. Parachute panel, located in the top of the balloon's envelope that allows it to be deflated. When a larger area of deflation is needed, some balloons are equipped with a rip panel. Propane, a lightweight, low-carbon fuel used in hot air balloon burners. Thermistor, an instrument which measures the temperature within the envelope. Variometer, an instrument to determine the rate of climb or descent, sometimes referred to as vertical velocity indicator. Balloons were first. Two brothers, Joseph and Etienne Montcalf EA, were well-educated Frenchmen who enjoyed researching science and flight. In 1782, after having read scientific papers about the properties of air, they noticed sparks and flames rising in their fireplace. So they took a small bag of silk, lit a fire underneath it, and watched it rise. They soon began experimenting outdoors with larger bags made of paper and linen. In 1783, their earlier experiments led to a demonstration with a balloon. Then, in September 1783, in a demonstration before King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, they attached to a balloon a cage with a sheep, a rooster, and a duck inside. All of the passengers were carried aloft and landed safely. Then on November 21, 1783, the first successful manned-powered flight was made in a Montcalf EA balloon. Two Frenchmen, Pelletter Diraz EA and the Marquis Francois Darland, flew their way into history aboard a balloon launched in Paris. The flight lasted about 25 minutes and it landed approximately 5 miles from the launch point. The race toward the skies had begun. Note, the Wright brothers are credited with the first manned-controlled powered flight. Since hot air balloons cannot be completely controlled due to the unpredictability of the wind, the Wright brothers' status was achieved when the brothers made their historic flight December 17, 1903. How they fly. A balloon operates on the principle of buoyancy. It all happens because hot air is lighter or more buoyant than cold air. Imagine that you have two parcels of air the same size. If the air in one parcel is hot and the other is cold, the warm air parcel will be lighter. If you can insert the hot parcel of air inside a very lightweight balloon, it would rise into the surrounding colder air. With enough hot air, a balloon will lift not only itself, but passengers, instruments, fuel, and all of the equipment needed for a flight. The large container that holds this hot air is called the envelope. There are strips of very strong material along the vertical length of a balloon that attach the envelope to the basket. These are known as load tapes. Power for the balloon is provided by a propane burner that quickly heats the air inside the envelope. The propane, in liquid form, is stored in tanks carried in the basket, called the gondola. When the pilot pulls a cord, the liquid propane rushes through a series of vaporizing coils and is ignited by a pilot flame at a jet in the burner. During ascent, it is quite common to have temperatures inside the envelope reach 212 degrees Fahrenheit. To get this kind of heat, burners need to produce several million BTU per hour. 
For clarification, a BTU is a British thermal unit, and by definition, it is a measure of heat. It is defined as the amount of heat required to raise the temperature of one pound of water, one degree Fahrenheit. The metric equivalent of the BTU is a calorie. A calorie is the amount of heat required to raise the temperature of one kilogram of water, one degree Celsius. A balloon floats on the wind and directional control is minimal. At various altitudes, wind direction can change and pilots take advantage of this by climbing or descending to get the balloon to change direction. The Mathematics of a Balloon's Lifting Power In the excellent book, Ballooning, A Complete Guide to Riding the Winds, by Dick Worth and Jerry Young, an explanation is given for the lifting power of a balloon. Typically, a hydrogen gas balloon will derive about 60 pounds of lift per 1,000 cubic feet, whereas a hot air model will develop only 17 to 20 pounds per 1,000 cubic feet at 100 to 120 degrees Celsius. Thus, a 77,000-cubic-foot balloon will lift 1,309 pounds gross lift, which is 77 times 17. The authors state that the envelope will weigh about 160 pounds, the burner and basket will weigh collectively 150 pounds, and four gas tanks will weigh 290 pounds. This gives a total aircraft weight of 600 pounds. If the balloon has a gross lifting power of 1,309 pounds, that means it will carry 709 pounds under standard conditions. Divide 709 by the weight of an average human at 170 pounds and the balloon will carry 4.17 persons, or three passengers, one pilot, and some miscellaneous equipment. To ascend or go up, the pilot lights the burner to create hot air inside the envelope. To descend or go down, the pilot can pull down on the parachute control and this allows hot air to escape out the vent opening at the top of the envelope, called the crown. Construction of a balloon's envelope A large volume of lightweight air is best contained in a sphere. If you study a hot air balloon closely, you will notice that the general shape of the envelope is spherical. To make the shape of a balloon, a series of panels are sewn together. These panels are called gores. The fabric most widely used is nylon and dacron, a form of polyester. There are advantages to both of these fabrics. Dacron will withstand higher temperatures, but nylon is lighter and stronger. The fabrics are coated with polyurethane and other additives to give it longer wear and greater resistance to ultraviolet sunlight damage. Most fabrics weigh between 1.2 and 2.4 ounces per square yard. The basket, a balloon pilot's cockpit. The basket of a balloon is its cockpit. The fuel for the burners is liquid propane and is carried along in cylindrical tanks. When the liquid propane passes through the coils on top of the burner, it vaporizes. A small pilot flame ignites the propane and a much larger flame shoots up through the skirt into the envelope. A balloon pilot's control system is the ascent and descent power of the burner. There is a panel inside of a hot air balloon that allows some of the hot air to escape. It's called the parachute panel and looks somewhat like a conventional parachute only it fills a hole in the top of the balloon, called the crown. This hole is known as a vent. The vent varies from 6 to 18 feet across. The parachute is held in place by cords inside the envelope. The hot air pressure inside the balloon keeps the parachute in place. However, when the pilot wants to release some of the hot air, a cord is pulled which draws the parachute downward, thus opening the vent hole. When the cord is released, the parachute is pushed back into the vent, closing it so the rest of the hot air is not allowed to escape. Cockpit Instrumentation 
Generally, the pilot has only three instruments on the instrument panel. One of the most important is the vertical velocity indicator or variometer. This gives the pilot an indication of the rate of climb and descent. Next, the pilot has an instrument that gives a measurement of the temperature at the top of the balloon and it is known as a thermistor. This is an electronic warning instrument that shows the pilot when the temperature is dropping and a descent is about to occur. The optimum temperature inside the crown is around 100 degrees Celsius. Finally, an altimeter is installed that provides the height of the balloon above sea level. Flying in a hot air balloon If you ever have the opportunity to fly in a hot air balloon, do it. This flight is one of the most peaceful and beautiful flights you'll ever experience. Being so close to the balloon pilot and the control equipment will enable you to get a very good idea of how the balloon actually flies. Observing the pilot's continued attention to both ground and aerial structures, to the need for greater or lesser altitude, and to the safety in using the propane tanks will place you directly in the ongoing action of balloon flight. It is a wondrous thing to behold. Aerospace Dimensions Module 1 Introduction to Flight Learning Outcomes Review 1. Describe the relationship between Bernoulli's principle and Newton's laws of motion and how they were used to develop a machine that could fly. 2. Describe the coefficient of lift and the parameters involved. 3. Identify the parts of an airplane and an airfoil. 4. Describe the four forces affecting an airplane in flight. 5. Define the three axes, movement around those axes, and the control surfaces that create the motion. 6. Describe how gliders use the environment to obtain altitude. 7. Describe why gliders look different than powered airplanes. 8. Discuss how gliders can achieve great distances without power. 9. Define the principle of buoyancy and how this relates to the flight of a balloon. 10. Describe the components of a balloon and how each works in the flight profile. 11. Describe the history of the balloon and why it's recognized as the first powered man flight.